the biggest irony is that we actually were able to do a lot of things more effectively with those freelancers than we had with our team just because we were able to be so focused. After explosive growth, Laura Roda's business began to plateau and growth stagnated and then declined. The size of her team was not aligned to the lack of growth they began to experience. So she started to make significant changes that most founders just won't commit to. Laura began to consider the size of her team, the location of her startup and life, the kind of business outcome she was hunting for and everything else in her power to change. What unfolded is a riveting story of shifted startup perspective, grit and determination from an impressive founder you've probably never heard of but need to get to know right now. Laura was the founder and CEO of Meet Edgar and is now the founder and CEO of Paperbell. She has been an independent entrepreneur since the age of 22 and her story is going to shift the way you see your business. My name is Nick Haralambis and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. With me today is Laura Rhoda. I appreciate you coming on board. We met a few weeks ago, maybe even a month or more ago mm -hmm. at a conference, and you told an, a riveting story about a business that I knew my audience would love. So welcome. How are you? I'm great. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I've done a lot of podcasts, but I think the, the theme of this one is really interesting. Now that I'm on it, I'm excited to go back and listen to other people's episodes. So far, I've had this described most accurately as therapy for entrepreneurs. And yeah. that's kind of what I think it's going to be like. So why don't we dive in and you tell me a bit about the business, how it makes money, what it is, how you started it, or anything else that's pertinent to us moving forward. Yeah. So Meet Edgar was launched in 2014. Meet Edgar still exists, but I have now sold it. So I'm already noticing using some past tense. The business is still alive and well. I'm still a happy user, but if you hear me on this interview using the past tense, it's because I'm no longer involved in the business. So it was launched in 2014. It's a SaaS business and it's a social media scheduling tool. So it's for small businesses and freelancers to schedule all their social media marketing. Cool. And explain the, the revenue model and the business model so that the audience has an idea of how mm -hmm. you make money and where things could have gone wrong. Yeah. So uh, the revenue model is very simple. It's all subscription. Actually, for most of the business, we only had one rate, $50 a month. Now there is a lower price plan as well. So our market is totally small businesses, a lot of freelancers, content creators, that type of person. And yeah, we never had any custom contracts or enterprise plans or anything like that. So everyone's on a monthly or yearly subscription. And that was a laser focused decision from day one, or did you evolve to that pricing structure? We started with that structure and we never found anything better. Basically, like we launched at 50 a month, we ended at 50 a month. You hear so much advice to raise prices. We did try to raise prices at one point and it did not go well. It really crushed our growth and we did end up as I mentioned, adding a lower price plan. So I think that's a little lesson and you really have to look at your own unique market. In our market, we had a lot of alternatives that were lower priced and our market wanted at least to be able to start with a, a lower price plan. So over the years, sometimes in the beginning, we did that thing that I think a lot of SaaSes do where you're like, oh, well, I'll just put a $500 plan on the pricing page and see if anyone buys it. But 
No one did. When you founded this, uh, social media scheduling was kind of quite nascent and new. There was Buffer and maybe Hootsuite and nobody else. Mm. Was there a reason that you dived into this particular niche? We certainly weren't the first to market, but over the years there became... I don't know, kind of peaks and valleys where some years you would feel like, oh my God, there's 50 tools launched this year. Sometimes it got a little less popular. So the reason we launched Edgar is because we did and really still do have a unique take on the space. So the inspiration for launching Edgar was, I was actually teaching about social media marketing. I had an online course business. And one of my core observations for how to be successful with social media marketing was the fact that only a tiny percentage of your audience sees anything you publish. And we're talking about the people that follow you. We're not talking about all the people on Twitter. We're talking about out of the 500 people that follow you on Twitter, like 5% actually see anything that you tweet. So I saw this and I thought about how most people did and still do create unique content every day. This is still kind of the standard way to do social is you create new content, you create unique content every day, which is a little bit crazy (laughs) if such a small percentage are seeing anything, especially um, if you're the type of business where you have a lot of evergreen content, where you're blogging or creating podcasts and the podcast is just as, this one's a great example. Most podcasts are, right? You discover it five years from now, it's still just as valuable, but so many podcasters only post on social when the episode comes out and they never post their their back catalog. So that was kind of the core differentiator of Edgar and still is. With Edgar, you build a library of your evergreen social content and Edgar keeps repurposing it for you. So basically I had an idea on how to do social media scheduling better. Now there are other tools that have used the same idea. We were the first to do it and it's now I have another startup. We still use Edgar for it. I still think it's a a great way to do social. It's not the only way, but especially if your business is not going to say, okay, I'm going to create, put a ton of budget and create a custom TikTok video every day. For a lot of businesses that just want to kind of have the basics out on social and have a presence, I think it's, it's the smartest way to do it. I'm guilty of this exact problem that you've highlighted. I create a new podcast episode every week. I send out four or five tweets in that week. And then that podcast episode is dead to me in spite of being evergreen value. Like, (laughs) and you're right that evergreen is such a key thing. If you're creating something like a blog post, that's relevant every day for the next five years, you should be Mm. promoting it. Okay. That's interesting. So 2014, you found it. And then do you start to scale immediately? Did you raise money? And where do we move towards this reforming of the business that you needed to go through? Yeah. So it was a bootstrap slash self-funded business. So I mentioned that I had another business that had done very well. So I used proceeds from that business to fund Meet Edgar. Also, I was working for free and my co-founder is my husband. So he's the one that built the initial software and I'm on the business marketing side. So we were both contributing our time for free and we ended up putting around 200,000 in the business, although we didn't track it at the time, which was a huge mistake. But luckily, that didn't end up being a disaster because the business did get to to profitable pretty quickly. But we had very fast growth. We were at a million ARR 11 months after launch. I think we got, we did great marketing, but we also were very much right place, right time. It was one of those like, okay, the, the market is ready for your product. The idea makes a lot of sense to people. So in the first few years of Edgar, We had very fast growth and then we had some problems along the way. Like I said, like raising pricing didn't work out. We had uh, Twitter cut off a lot of our functionality. Twitter decided that you're not allowed to repeat content 
on Twitter. So we had to change our core functionality just on Twitter. We had a few of those kind of roadblocks hit us and we had a decline in revenue and then we had our revenue just flatline. And it was some months we'd add a little, some months we'd take away a little, but the business was no longer growing. And this went on for a few years and it wasn't, it wasn't a situation where we said, oh, we feel fine. This is just is what it is. We're going to just sort of let it sit and be fine with it. We were really trying <laughs> to get growth, but it was not happening, which was obviously like very frustrating, very demoralizing for the team when every quarter you're setting these growth targets and then having to sort of say, okay, well, I know you guys really tried and good job, but not, and let's keep trying. Brutal, right? When you yeah. just can't figure out why and your team is working really hard, but yeah. they just can't make it work. Yeah. And I mean, this is, people are often like, okay, so what, what caused the plateau? And I'm like, well, if I knew we could have fixed it, you know what I mean? <laughs> Like, yeah, I would love, I would love <laughs> like, to Like, where know. are your car keys? If I knew the answer to that, <laughs> right. I wouldn't be looking for them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I would love to know exactly what caused it because we, we really never did figure out exactly oh, wow. what caused it or we would have been able to fix it. So hmm. this went on for a few years. And at the beginning of 2021, I think this is often how big changes or big ideas happen is I think you just kind of wake up one morning and that day you're like, I'm done, I'm done. I'm ready to actually make this change. I think sometimes we think about things, obviously I've been frustrated with this for years and I was trying to do things to change the situation, but I wasn't really willing to make any really big, scary changes. And it was just kind of one of those things where it's like, I'm, I'm no longer going to tolerate this and so one of the things I did was I joined a coaching program, a mastermind program, and really my core aim in joining that program was I need something to change with Edgar. And I didn't really even, like growing was obviously a great option, but it wasn't even the only option that I was thinking about. I'm like, okay, we either need to get this to grow or maybe I need to sell it, or maybe I just want to put it into kind of maintenance mode and I'm not expecting it to grow, but I'm also then not managing a larger team. It's like, okay, well, if it's, this was kind of one of the core conflicts I was having is we had a team of about like 12 to 15 people. And I thought if it's a self-serve SaaS business, it's not like we had anyone doing custom client work. We didn't have any kind of like account managers or anything like that. There wasn't a lot of human power needed to service the business. All that's really needed is like bug fixing and answering emails for customer service. So it just, it started to feel really out of alignment to have this team of people, but not have the growth in the business. So I'm like, I'm going to join this mastermind. I'm going to make a very significant change in the business in 2021. Um, and I was considering all sorts of things. I had moved, I built the company in America, but I had since moved to the UK. So I'm like, Maybe I'm going to start over with a European team where I can be in the time zone because we had always, the company was always remote, but in America. So we worked in a very remote synchronous way where we had a lot of live meetings and things like that. So I was really taken out of that when I moved to the UK. So yeah, I was considering a lot of different options for how I was going to make 
this big change to the business. Yeah, I want to just focus on this for a second because I think it's an important point that so many entrepreneurs find themselves in eventually. And the conference you and I were at actually spoke directly to this. Why should you grow for the sake of growth? Why should you Mm -hmm. raise money going for 100% year-on-year growth? Like, are there alternatives? And you've highlighted the, the alternatives really well. Growth? exit or maintenance. And mm-hmm. I'm interested in the very specific conversation that you and your partner had around these three things. Like you sat down and the two of you, firstly being married is a mm-hmm. thing, which we'll talk about later, but you sat down and you were like, okay, what do we do now? And how did you arrive at the decision that you made? Well, so it actually wasn't really a joint decision. Like his role in the business, like sometimes we joke that he's uncredited co-founder, but the reason we often don't call him a co-founder is because he didn't run the business with me over the years. He built the initial product and then he hired the dev team to replace him, but he really hadn't touched the business at all in years at that point. So actually for him, he, when we went through this decision process, he ended up being pulled back in because he's, we always had a like very robust dev team to do everything and he didn't have to touch anything. Bit of a a spoiler to where we're going, we ended up not having a robust dev team. And he was kind of, he was kind of okay with any of these options. We always viewed it as my business. He was obviously very much an integral part of it, but as far as like where I wanted to take it. That was that mm. was up to me. So, Which for me makes it even more interesting now that you're alone in that decision, weighing yeah. all of this up. It's yeah. it's really intense being a sole founder and making mm. these sorts of big decisions. Yeah, in some ways it's easier because at least you just get to do what you want to do, but in some ways it's harder because it's all it's all on you. Alone. Yeah. 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 Which I think is part of the reason I wanted the structure of the the mastermind program to have mm. other people to talk to and to kind of help me through this decision. The thing that was clear to me is that I was not willing to dive back into the business. So I had already started another SaaS business that I was excited about, Paperbell, the one that I'm running now. When I looked at Edgar, I had just kind of lost the passion for it. I had lost the passion for the social media space. And this is something you know that I always tell people as far as general advice for starting any business. Start the one that you actually want because anyone is hard and takes a lot of work, right? So when I see people being like, oh, I have an agency, but I absolutely hate having an agency, which is common with agencies, <laughs> I'm going to take that wasn't a random example, you know what I mean? I'm like, don't start an agency because you don't like running an agency. Like yeah. anything takes a lot of effort, software, agency, like any type of business takes a lot of effort. And if the person running it, and like we all have on days and off days, it's not like you wake up excited every single morning, but the founder needs to be excited at the end of the day about furthering that business because like nobody else is going to be excited for you. You know? Yeah, one of my favorite quotes on this front is Jim Carrey likes to say that you can fail at anything. So why not fail at something you love? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I don't have the passion to really take this on myself, really be in charge of of the growth. So it's like that option is eliminated. I could try to find a new leadership team, be like, okay, this leadership team has not worked out for the past few years. We're going to bring in a whole new leadership team, either in the US or in UK or Europe. But I mean, I was the only one to do that. So it's like, that's me Again, even though maybe in two years or whatever, I wouldn't be the one driving it. Obviously, I would be the one driving, hiring these people. 
So I'm like, okay, that kind of leaves me with this maintenance mode thing, which is a really interesting idea because the business would become much more profitable. Maybe the business could just sit and be sort of a cash machine for me. So I started looking at like, okay, who really contributes to the MRR of this business? Not growing the MRR, but just that MRR that's coming in every month, like who are the people on that team on the team that make the MRR happen? And just for just, the listeners who don't know, MRR is monthly recurring revenue. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's the revenue. That familiar jingle lets you know that this is a short advert for those entrepreneurs listening. Do you feel guilty when you're at home with your family that you should be working? Do you also feel guilty when you're working that you should be at home with your family or out with your friends? I get it. It's tough to build something meaningful but I don't believe that balance is something to strive for. I believe that work is part of life and life is part of work and I wanna help you integrate the two more effectively. If you think you need a coach to help you find this integration, then contact me and let's work together. Visit www.nharry.com. That's www.nharry.com. And now back to the knowledge bombs. And what I discovered about software, which is going to sound really obvious, but what people are buying is the software. Like what people are buying in Edgar is the Edgar software. That is the thing that we are selling. And the software is delivered by computers. It's genuinely not delivered by people. people. It's just not. No one needs to press any, every so often everything breaks and you have to press a button to fix it. But As far as like the software running, buying the software, truly no humans are involved. And people, listeners who aren't in the software industry may not know that the cost of delivering software is shockingly small. Like software companies will often have 2% overhead as far as the actual cost of the like server costs and things like that of actually delivering the software. It's It's build once, that's expensive. And after that, Mm -hmm. you have a product. It's not like you're running a factory and you're reproducing and there's cost of goods coming in and there's distribution and logistics. It's build once. And if you've built it well, more often than not, it's sell forever. Yeah. 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 And like there's something, if you're delivering videos, there are like a few little things that sure. can be more expensive, but generally software is like very, very cheap to run and deliver. So it's interesting being like, okay, the value that we're providing, what people are paying their 50 bucks for, what they're getting value from is the software. That's, that's the thing. And then as far as humans, it's like, okay, we want to be able to answer people's questions via email. So we need, and for Edgar, that meant when I looked at our actual volume, we needed like about three hours a day, which we had a team, we had two and a half people doing customer service full time. We had way more than we needed. So it's like, okay, we need about two and a half hours a day, three hours, customer service, weekdays. Okay. We also need someone to make sure that the software is running and is delivered, right? Because Every so often, you need to push the button to get things back up. Bugs come up that need to be fixed. If we're just looking at kind of maintenance bug fixing, we can do that for like maybe 10 hours a week, have a a full stack developer. And the way that people discovered Edgar, we couldn't tie to any of our marketing costs because the way that people discovered Edgar was searching for Meet Edgar 
or searching for social media scheduling tool, huh. finding a blog post with a list of 20 and then clicking on Meet Edgar. We were established wow. in the market. We were known as one of the, the best tools and we had never done, we had never had a sales team. We had never done anything outbound. We had run ads over the years, but it had never, it wasn't our core way um, of getting customers, especially at the end. So I'm like, okay, marketing. Okay, let's do a weekly newsletter. We had done that for a while. We'll just pull blog posts into the weekly newsletter. And I'm like, let's keep updating our blog. Cause we always did like content marketing. I'm like, let's just, but by that time we had been blogging since 2014, we had hundreds of blog posts. I'm like, why are we writing new blog posts? This is so dumb. Like we should just update the blog and your entire have. business is about repurposing content. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing? It's you amazing know? how you do fall into these hamster wheels of what the expected actions are for a company to maintain mm. a certain level of something. And it is these hard break moments that make you go, hold the phone. Maybe this isn't working anymore. Yeah. So if we're just looking to maintain, we're not mm. looking to grow. That's really all we need. So it's like freelance customer service freelance developer. We hired a freelancer to start updating the blog, like looking from an SEO perspective, updating old blog posts, and then hired another freelancer to just put those blog posts into a, a newsletter that went out once a week. And the biggest irony is that we actually were able to do a lot of things more effectively with those freelancers than we had with our team, just because we were able to be so focused. Like our newsletter used to be weekly, but over the years had fallen to every two weeks because we had like a full-time marketing person on staff that had a ton of things on her plate and she didn't have the wow. bandwidth to do the newsletter every week because she was too busy with so many other things. And our blog, mm. we had really like, we would always set these best practices for SEO and then they would slide over time because people were so busy and blah, blah, blah. But if you hire a freelancer just to update old posts for SEO purposes, it's like that's that's all they do. So we hired someone to research which posts to update, what updates to make. And we started getting significantly more blog traffic uh, once we switched to this new system. I know. It's just like, oh, so counterintuitive, <laughs> but such an incredible lesson in that, that sometimes the uh, one of my mantras for this year is the path of least expectation. Sometimes the path of least expectation is the most fruitful, even though mm -hmm. it's oh, the thing that you've done for so long. A friend of mine calls this legacide, suicide by legacy. That just because you've always done it this way, it's the thing that will slowly start to kill you if you continue yeah. to do it that way. And this is yeah. such a great example of that is that the, the force that you were made to look at, you were like, hold on, nothing's working. What can we break? And I love that. Yeah. So I kept looking at like, what do we actually need? And then of course, if you don't need a lot of people in your team, you also don't need all this infrastructure that supports the people, right? Mm. So you don't need any kind of operations or HR if you're just having three freelancers, we yeah. had an in-house bookkeeper. We were doing all these financial projections. It's like, we don't need to do any projections. We're just expecting it to be flat. We don't need to keep looking at the finances so often. We just need to hmm. you know, file our tax returns, but we don't really yeah. need any more financial detail after that. So it's just like the more, the more roles we cut, the more roles I saw that we could cut. They're all like tied to each other. So the minute right. you get rid of one, you don't need another. And then you also get rid of the subscription costs. Like... Google Workspaces and Slack mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. all these other tools that have multiple users that you don't need anymore. And it yeah. seems insignificant, but when you're trying to eke out profit in a maintenance business, those things actually eat your profit away. Yeah. 
So I ended up sort of figuring this out in my head and on paper before I made any changes. Just how I'm talking about it, I, I realize it might sound like I was like, okay, first I'm getting rid of this person and this person, this person. Mm. I didn't do it that way because I knew, obviously, if you've ever run a company, every person that you let go of, it's extremely disruptive for the rest of the team. And this is, I think, one of the hardest things about running a business is like, often we have someone that we know is not a good match, but we don't want to let them go. I mean, one, obviously it's hard for us, it's hard for them, but it is hard for the rest of the team when someone's let go. Everyone's like, oh, what's going on? Am I next? So I'm like, I need to make sure that this is not this like death by a thousand cuts type of situation. Although what that meant was in some ways it was even worse because what I ended up doing was laying off literally the entire team because we had we had no need for a single full-time position your team must have known and i mean i've had to do this too letting letting go of a few people and when i did it they were like yeah we knew it was coming so they must have known something was up how did you Mm -hmm. feel in the moments leading up to like the weeks leading up to that did they know were they expecting it So what they knew, we always shared all our financials with the entire team. So people knew that like the business had not grown, that our profitability was getting smaller over the years. People knew that I was not happy with that state. And so I don't know if anyone was thinking, oh, I wonder if she's going to lay off the entire team. But like people knew that the business was troubled. And actually a few people during our one-on-one conversation said I had been wanting to look for a new job, but I was feeling guilty about it because the thing that we did well is like people loved working at Edgar. We always had a great environment. Like we had a great team. People got along really well. We had great benefits, all that stuff. So a few people were like, I kind of like wanted to jump ship, but I didn't want to be a jerk to do it. So some people did feel freed up. I don't want to sound like I'm giving like a positive spin. Well, obviously, No, it's a testament to you as a leader and the kind of business culture that you built, right? Like, yes, getting rid of staff is always hard, but it's easier when your staff likes you and they like your yeah. business and there's empathy there. It's worse when it's this cutthroat, no bullshit, go away, never talk to me again. And I feel like that's a good thing to highlight that it's okay to have feelings towards your team and for them to have feelings of guilt mm-hmm. towards you for leaving. Like mm-hmm. that means you built something worthwhile. Yeah. So, I mean, during the time leading up to it, I was obviously like stressed, terrified, but I also did feel clear that it was going to be the right decision. And afterwards, it it felt like a huge relief. And actually, most of the conversations were more kind of, yeah, like understanding. And what I told the team is like, you guys should work at a a place that's thriving because we did have really talented people there. And like I said, to be stuck at a company that was not growing was not, was not fun in a lot of ways. And it has been really fun watching the roles that people have gotten afterwards. Like one person always wanted to work at automatic WordPress and now she's working there and she actually switched from a customer service role to a product marketing role. And she had never worked in startups before. Like actually a lot of the people at the company had never worked at like a startup or tech company. The developers had obviously, but not the rest of the team. So it was really cool seeing people move like into this industry and be able to get these very well-paid jobs after Edgar, which as far as I know, everyone did have an easy time finding their next role because like it wasn't it startups are hot right now it's easy to find jobs like now everyone's hiring remotely people were not in and it's not like it was like travel industry like it was a good time to find a job you know 
Yeah, there, there is this strange, I can't think of the right word, but like martyrdom that founders have that if I let go of these people, I'm ruining their lives. Mm-hmm. And actually, a lot of the time, if you've done good hiring practices up until that point, you're hiring talented people who are going to find work. And yeah. it isn't really, oh, if I don't employ them, they don't make money next week. It's just not true. There is a wealth of jobs for smart people who have been hired to do a good job and have got a good reference from you. So founders, if you're listening, it's okay to sometimes Mm -hmm. make that hard choice because you've hired good people and they'll find other work. And the amount of people I've found work for having Mm -hmm. gotten rid of a team is part of the deal, right? I'm a nice guy. You're a nice person. You find them work. It's part of the job. Right. Right. And we were able to give a great severance. We were able, this is American team. So we were able to extend health insurance for a long time Hmm. because we didn't wait until the company was at this total disaster point. That's such a key point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've all heard the stories of companies that just all of a sudden have been like, yep, everyone's laid off and you're not even getting your last paycheck because we are literally, we raised 50 million and we ran out of all of it. And that is, that's irresponsible and offensive to me as a frugal founder. Like Mm -hmm. you can see it coming. You've got, uh, I think it's the fast guys that blew through $180 million in three months, six months, whatever. Like I'm sorry, that is irresponsible and unacceptable. You had an accountant who could have told told you what was going on and you chose to ignore it because of your ego. And I appreciate hearing from people like you who didn't do that, who your Mm -hmm. ego said, actually, let me help the people that I've employed rather than let me protect my own little self-ego. Like, I really appreciate hearing that. So... um... Yeah, we did the we did the giant layoff. Some people stayed on for about a month. We had like some customer service and some dev. Some people that was their their last week, and so we put the business into into the maintenance mode that I described. Having a few freelancers, our MRR did actually go up slightly after that. <laughs> yeah, which like kind of makes me want to kill myself. It's like, come on! I just lied to all those people over there that we were in decline. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, it wasn't like, it was just a little bit, it wasn't anything crazy, but the only reason it went up is because we did actually have a great result from our blog focusing so much on SEO and it turned just a little side SEO tip. Mm. If you're someone who's been blogging for a long time, Google loves updated old blog posts. That is like, Mm. that is Google's favorite right now because you have kind of both things they like, like you have the new and you have the history and the authority. So if you're in a position where you, you know, do have that to take advantage of, I would highly suggest spending time updating and republishing old blog posts because yeah, we started ranking for, um, like post on Instagram, like kind of these basic, like social media terms that brought in like Mm. a lot of volume that we hadn't been ranking for. And so that did lead to a slight increase in MRR. So I made the big change running the business this way for like a few months. And the plan at the time was like, okay, I'm just going to run in maintenance mode, maybe forever, maybe for a few years. I'm going to see if I like this basically was the plan. Um, But there were some things I liked about it and some things I didn't. So the worst thing about it was that my husband, Chris was kind of back on call because all we had was a freelance developer. We didn't, before we'd had like a CTO that was not him, like truly having ownership of the business. And we actually did end up um, getting um, attacked, like unsuccessfully attacked during that time where you have to be like, okay, shit, we have to figure out what to do right now, all hands on deck. So Chris went from like not having to worry about this business to now being back on call 
on the dev side because our free our 10 hour a week freelance developer is not like getting alerts in the middle of the night yeah, they and don't actually care. he did it's one yeah, of the gives yeah. of having a freelance is they don't really care they're just right. doing the work yeah yeah and he had been someone who was full-time on the team that ended up being our ongoing freelancer so he like he did go very above and beyond just shout out to him but yeah obviously we were just paying him for a little bit of, of freelance work so yeah chris got pulled back into like being on call on the dev side i was like Everything was pretty automated, but I was still back more into the business than I had been because the business did have a leadership team that was running without me. I also mm. saw that like having a business in maintenance mode sounds cool, but it's not that fun because you're not excited about building it. And I had this contrast with my other business, Paperbell, where I was really excited about building it and growing it, where Edgar just felt like kind of like, a drag. Yeah, I completely understand that. And it is, this is the the difficult conundrum that I think founders find themselves in, that this thing can either earn me some money until it dies, even if that takes five years and I'm drawing money out of this, but it's not fun. And I yeah. don't know any startup founders who build things just for the money. Like yeah. there are easier ways to make money than building a startup. Like go get right. a consulting job at Bain & Co. You're going to be rich in 10 years. Great. <laughs> yeah. If you don't love your startup, you may as well not build it because there's other shit to build that will make you more money. So I actually appreciate and understand this point. Like letting something slowly taper off and die. Actually, in our brains, it's more like, let me just cut it up. Let me just let it go yeah. and move away and rather let it die. I don't need the money. And also as the founder, like at the end of the day, there's always a level of stress on you. And in mm. Edgar's case, we were totally dependent on third party, third party tools, right? All we did was yeah. post Facebook, LinkedIn, you know, Pinterest. So there was always a risk that one of those tools would say, we're pulling your access and there would have been nothing that we could do about it. So yeah. as the owner, as the founder, like it just creates this very kind of low level of stress in Anxiety, your life yeah. at all times is like, Ooh, what's going to happen? And like, what am I going to, and then I'm going to be the one, if we lose our Facebook access, I'm going to be the one dealing with that shit mm. show. <laughs> that's going to yeah. be, that's going to be all. And me. clients are still paying you. Even if it's in maintenance mode, you still actually have a, right. a job to do for your clients, whether you yeah. like it or not. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So after doing that a few months, I'm like, I think, I think it's time to sell the business. And of course, in some ways we had it in a good place to sell. And in some ways we didn't, which I also, mm. that was an interesting learning for me because an interesting thing about SaaS is it's the valuation is always said as a multiple of the top line revenue, which is not true for like any other business that I've ever heard of. Usually when you sell a business, it's a multiple of your profit. SaaS, they do a multiple of your top line revenue. And that doesn't mean that no one's like looking at your profit, but being a little profitable or a lot profitable in SaaS often doesn't really impact your multiple that much, which is, which is kind of strange. So even though we were mega profitable, acquirers didn't care so much about that. And actually it was a big negative to acquirers that we did not have our full dev team because they want uh. developers who are like familiar with the product and developers are also the hardest role to hire right now. So they're mm -hmm. hoping to have developers that will like come over with the acquisition. So even though it sounds like it might have been like perfect for acquiring because the profitability, it actually, if, if I had to design it to be perfect to acquire, now I know that that is not what I would have done, you know? You'd, I mean, in SaaS, it makes complete sense, especially in the social media space, they want growth. 
They don't actually mm-hmm. give a shit about profits. They don't right. mind if you've got if they've got to cover when they acquire you a little bit of marketing cost to keep the growth going. But you had made the decision to rather shift towards profitability. And yeah. as a one human company, technically, that's great. You want a profitable yeah. business because that goes into your back pocket. But acquirers want to add that to their top line, not to their yeah. profit. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, I did end up selling the business. It wasn't a huge multiple, but the business was doing a few million a year. So obviously any multiple when you own hundred yeah. percent of that adds up to a pretty, a pretty great outcome. And yeah, like a lot of people have asked me, was it, was it hard to let go of? Was it emotional? And it really wasn't because at that time I was very clear that I was done with mm. it. And I'm glad I went through the journey that I went through because I did have that like, okay, I feel 100% ready to, to sell this and move on. I want to dig into the exit. So I, I agree with you. I don't think it's hard to let go of a business, especially when you've gotten to that point in it. Like emotionally, it's like, this is done now. Let me move on. Yeah. I'm interested in the actual sale process. So mm-hmm. a lot of people ask me, having exited three startups, how do you find an acquirer? How do you, where do you even start? So what did you do? You were like, okay, it's time. Then you just put an ad out and were like, hey, buy my company. Like, what was the next step? The first thing is I learned everything I could about selling a business. And I find a lot of people, including myself, feel very intimidated by the whole thing. They feel like, oh, this is brokers and M&A and a bunch of stuff I've never done before in a world I don't know. So my first step was like, first of all, I'm, I'm going to read all the books. There was like Three of there's not very many books, by the way. If you want to read all the books about this, especially ones that are related to a software business, there's not very mm. many. There's one called The Art of Selling Your Business by John Warlow, the same guy that wrote Built to Sell. Mm. You only have to read that one. Just read that one. So I read all the books. I listened to John Warlow also has a podcast about people's stories who have exited their business. I listened to a ton of those podcasts. I talked to friends that had sold their business about their experience. And after just doing that, I'm like, okay. I have a pretty good handle on this. I think it's interesting. I think that's true for like almost everything. If you just read a few books about something, you're like, yeah, I kind of know all about this now. <laughs> yeah, know? and and never mind know all about it enough to be above the average. And right. it's shocking to me how many founders will say to me, I want to sell my business, where do I start? I'm like, read a fucking book. Then come <laughs> and ask me. Like they haven't done any of their own research. They yeah. want someone to handhold them. And so it's amazing that you say that and you're right. Read three books and you're above average and you will likely oh, yeah. find gaps that nobody else is going to find. Yeah, yeah. So obviously someone who's had personal experience doing it a hundred times is going to know more. But like reading reading the books gets you pretty far. So I think that was that was huge for me as far as just not feeling intimidated by the whole thing. I also read a book that I always recommend that's called Winning Through Intimidation. (laughs) (laughs) That is the most American title of a book that I've ever heard in my life. That is fantastic. Winning Through Intimidation. And it's a negotiation book, but it truly is not what it sounds like. It's actually about not being intimidated by other people. It's not about intimidating others. It's kind of about recognizing then in every situation, there's a power dynamic. And in a lot of situations, other people are trying to intimidate you and you can mm. just not show up for it. And that yeah. totally changes the, the dynamic yeah. of the situation. That's an astute observation that intimidation is a choice. You don't mm. have to be intimidated by the thing someone's saying to you, or it's this thing that we all think we're not the age we are. Like, I'm 38 now and I still feel like I'm 10. And there's, uh, there's someone who's 39. Who I'm like, oh my God, that person's 39. They're much older than me. 
No, they're not. They're one year older yeah. than me. I don't have to be intimidated by that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I actually practice this at high-end bathroom stores in London. So I'm I'm remodeling a house right now. So I wanted to check out I wanted to check out some like showers and and so the way this works in London, I don't know if it works this way everywhere, but the way it works in London, if you want to go to like the Kohler store, like these bathroom stores, they don't they don't let you in. Which by the way, they don't say. I just thought you just go in like a regular store, but first they just have it locked. There's no sign or anything. They just you try to open the door. So you feel like an idiot because you're standing there like trying to open the door and then it's locked and then you have to be like, oh, hello, hello, hello. And then they're like, point at the buzzer, ring the buzzer. And then they open the door. They kind of like peek their head out. They don't let you in. They kind of peek their head out and they're like, oh, are you a, they'll be like, are you an architect? Are you a designer? They're like, we only do appointments with architects and designers. So I don't know why they do this, but it's obviously designed to intimidate you the whole, the whole process. And after I read the book, I'm like, I don't need to be intimidated by these toilet salespeople. Like, I'm just going to look. When you frame it that way, these toilet salespeople, then absolutely not. Screw them. That's hilarious. And like, I was, and to be clear, it's not about being rude or anything like Mm. that. And that is often going to be very unsuccessful if you're rude. But just coming from this, it's so much about your own mindset of how you're genuinely coming across and if you're genuinely Mm. not intimidated by their song and dance i'd be like oh i'm not a designer i just i looked up a model i wanted to see online could i just pop in for a minute i know you guys like to have appointments so happy to make an appointment for next time do i see it over there in that corner could i just like pop in and check it out for a minute and they're like oh uh, okay i guess i guess they don't know what to do you know you've like turned their game around on them so panicked (laughs) that is fantastic (laughs) and how did this translate into you selling your business because it's just a it's a little example like i know something noah kagan teaches is to ask for a discount when you buy coffee and it's the exact same thing right it Mm. sounds like so terrifying to ask for a discount when you buy a coffee you're like i'm gonna feel like an idiot they're gonna look at me like i'm crazy they're gonna say no which like yeah they probably will say no or they might like laugh they might think it's funny like it'll probably start a conversation but these little things that we're so scared to do and then you do it you ask to go into the store or you ask by the way can i have 50p off my coffee today and then you're like oh that was fine this is not i didn't die scary. i didn't die I don't need to be scared of of the coffee shop or the toilet store. And so I think it just sort of bolsters your confidence. And then you mm. can kind of remember when you're in a situation where you're talking to a broker or an M&A person or a potential acquirer or whatever, to be aware that they want to have, not because they're like evil or something, it's just the way it works. Like they want to create a situation where they have the power and you don't, but you do not have to buy into that just the way you didn't when you just asked to go into the store, even though they tried to make you feel like uh, a pleb when you dared try to enter their store. Yeah. It's such an important thing to, to like double down on here, even not from an exit perspective, but even from a fundraising perspective, Mm -hmm. the amount of founders that I see who are intimidated by investors. And I'm like, no, 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 you've got this wrong. They don't know how to build a business. They need you. They need to give you money and you need to act like they deserve to give you money. And if you don't, then you're always on the back foot from day one. Even if they give you money, you're always the poor founder who needs the investor. Mm -hmm. And actually that's changed. That's not the way the world is anymore. Yeah. And selling your business, it's so easy to feel like, oh, these bigger businesses and I don't know if I'm going to meet their criteria. And I think you do have to 
kind of hype yourself up a bit yeah. with your own thing. You always see everything that's wrong with it. That's just kind of the nature of it. So yeah. I really did spend time kind of hyping myself up thinking like, okay, in my case, it's like, okay, I have a business that's doing a few million a year. I don't have any investors, which to an acquirer is actually an amazing thing because there's only one decision maker. So they are keen yeah. for that. Like it's a, it might not be a growing business, but it is a very predictable, stable business, all reoccurring revenue. I'm like, there are not that many of me in this world. And then yeah. ones who are like in an industry they want and want to sell, like I, I have something very valuable here. And you do have to keep reminding yourself of that because something that I learned in the Art of Selling book is it's a very common tactic for them to try to make you feel like it is less valuable for them mm. to be like, Ooh, but I don't, ew, I don't, it's like, it's not so good because of this and that. And you're like, Oh shit, I should just take whatever they offer because I've, yeah. I've got a dud here. Yeah. Then it's so, it's so true how you get tricked into thinking that the thing you've built isn't valuable, even though millions of dollars in revenue, okay. small team, like this incredible business actually. And it's not, it's not like they, they agree with what they're saying. They're just trying to knock your valuation down yeah. because every percentage point that comes down is profit in this purchase for them. And to jump back to your point about being a sole founder who owns 100%, that's an important point for an acquisition because it means less legal fees, less mm. back and forth, less time to close this deal. And for an acquirer, that is exceptionally attractive because they can have one meeting with you, make you an offer, you accept, they sign the documents the next day and it's done. That isn't how it happens usually, but it's very likely that that's a good thing. Being a sole founder is a good thing in a lot of situations. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, the kind of the short version of how I sold it is, I ended up looking at what's what's called micro PE. Basically, they're firms that buy SaaS companies because that was kind of the easiest way to do it. I'm like, if they buy SaaS companies, I know they're interested in my company because I've got a SaaS company. As far as like a strategic can be really random, who's going to buy you? And we hadn't had much strategic. I mean, we didn't have a real strategic interest over the years. So I'm like, I don't really know how I'm going to magic up all these strategic people. Also with a strategic mm. sale, the founder usually goes and works in the company, which I wasn't willing to do. So mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm just going to find all the, the firms that buy SaaS companies and I'm going to approach them, which was not hard. There's like 20 of them. I published the list in my blog post. So now you don't even have to Google like I did. You can just go to my blog post. Um, and I literally just emailed, cold emailed them because again, I have, I have what they're looking to buy and people think yeah. like, they think oh, they're like, Oh, you can't just cold email them. But it's like, I've got a cello. You're looking to buy a cello. Yeah. You want to hear from me. You want to hear from yeah. me. I've got exactly what you want to buy. So obvious when you say it. And the, I love the self-talk that you've convinced yourself of. Like I have something of value. They want something of value yeah. in this industry. Why would I not email them? And right. like the thing that is great that I'm observing here is you're not even doing exceptional amounts of work here for this. You're right. doing in, in like your and my heads, you're doing the bare minimum and yes. the obvious. Let me find who's in the space, who wants to buy and who's bought what I've got before. And let me email them. Like it couldn't be easier. It, it, well, it was very easy. It was not very time consuming. And what's been fascinating about writing the blog post is I've found that it totally bumps up against people's mindset limitations because they'll ask yeah. me these questions and they'll be like, yeah, but how, how long did it take you to email everyone? And I'm like, about an hour? Like, you know, like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> who even cares if it took you five hours to write one email, if it leads to a million dollar exit, great, good time well spent.
Right. But I notice people are looking for a way to make it Not harder. Mm. People are looking for a way to be like, it can't be that easy. It can't be that straightforward. Or they'll be like, oh, so you like, you already had a relationship with them. And I'm like, no, like uh, some of them I, I might have, but that didn't matter. And actually the company that I ended up selling to Short Swift, the founder who wasn't the guy that I ended up interacting with during the process, he sent me an email. He's like, hey, do you remember that we talked a few years ago? And I was like, no. I didn't remember that. And I didn't even reach out to him because I didn't even know that I had talked to him. I just did, That's like, wild. I literally just did their, like, contact at, like, whatever email was on their website. Again, because, like, they're looking to buy SaaS companies. So if you send yeah. an email to their general help inbox, it's like, I'm a SaaS company. Do you want to buy it? They're like, yeah, I want to yes. talk to you. That's what we do. I mean, yeah. it's just, you're so right. People look for hard and difficult reasons not to do the basic work. To be lazy. They look for ways to justify their laziness. And you, of all the things I can tell, just speaking to you, are not, you're anything but lazy. And that just, it's incredible how that just sets you above all the other people, right? Just doing that extra 10% of work. Well, and the way I look at it, like, I don't view it as justify their laziness. I would say, like, justifies their fear, you know? That's probably like better. People... That's a, a, more, a more intelligent way to say that. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah. Like people are scared of sending this email. So you mm. look for ways to justify why you can't, not why doing it won't it. work out, why you should. And I mean, to be clear, myself as well, I have not reached some sort of nirvana <laughs> where I have no fear of anything. But when like, I do find when it's something specific like this, it's like, okay, I know I need to do this. How am I going to keep working on changing my mind about this problem because I started out very intimidated as well and like I talked to mm. a few brokers and I was like oh I don't know do I need a broker but then I kept thinking of like it's like you just have to look at it logically like there's a lot of industries where they try to convince you that they have some sort of magic like agencies mm. do this all the time too they're like oh we're gonna like reach out to our contacts it's like who are those con are they just the like three most First obvious page people of Google. Google right yeah yeah <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Every time, especially agencies, you're right. This like faux importance that they have and it's just yeah. crap. So I'm like, I don't, I have no evidence that these brokers actually have some like top secret. It just doesn't make sense, right? Like they have some mm. top secret list of people who buy SaaS companies that want to remain totally anonymous and you can't find any other way. It's like, it, yeah. it doesn't, no, people who want to make money want to be known. They want their right. information out there. And I think maybe at this level of a multi-million dollar exit, that's true, right? People want to know. If you're talking about a unicorn exit, of course, you need a broker yeah. and you need a bank. That's not what we're discussing. Right. We're discussing normal-sized businesses. They want to make money. People want to buy them. So yeah. contact them. Yeah. So obvious I... when you say it out loud. Right. I still need a lawyer. Like It's not like I knew how to do every part myself. Sure. And I wasn't opposed to using a broker I just never found someone that I felt could really like add a lot of value and I thought I might as yeah. well start myself like if I cold email all these micro PE firms and none of them get back to me or they're all like I talk to them and they're all like you do have a dud we have no interest in this then like mm. maybe I'll need to consider another avenue but that's that's not what happened yeah that makes complete sense to me so in uh, closing of this show, this has been so illuminating. The the last question I normally ask people is, of of that experience, what is the one thing you've learned that you take with you into your next business? And for you, that's Paperbell. Is there anything specific? Yeah. I mean, the team stuff, I'm translating very 
literally. So we're, we're only doing freelancers for Paperbell because I see, and maybe at some point we'll have a need for a full-time role for something, but it's like, I don't want to make that a full-time role until it's just pounding me over the head. Obvious. Like this Mm. really needs to be in-house full-time because what happened is at a startup, maybe every type of business, what you need changes a lot over the years and even quarter to quarter. I mean, from a marketing perspective, like very few SaaS companies just have one strategy that they execute from the beginning. They keep doing it, right? Like you need to mess around with different things. You're like, we're going to try podcast sponsorships. We're going to try having our own podcast. We're going to try Google ads. We're going to try Pinterest ads. We're going to try working with influencers on Instagram, right? There's a lot of different things that you try. And even if you do find one that's a success, you usually do, like maybe you don't do it forever. Maybe you change it up. It's hard to find full-time team members, especially as a small team that are like, yes, I can do, I'm, I'm excellent Everything. at all those things where a freelancer, you can find a subject matter expert for each of those mm. things to do it really well. And if it doesn't work or if the budget runs out or time runs out, you're that's that's fine. That's what everyone is expecting. And and same with dev, right? Obviously you have ongoing dev needs, but maybe you're working on a mobile app and it's like, okay, we have a big project to build the initial thing, but then we could just hire a freelancer to maintain it and make it match after that. Or, or once every six months, we're going to kind of update it or we're going to do a design refresh. We don't need a full-time designer on the team. I just see it, it makes so much more sense as a bootstrap business to really spend money on exactly the things that you need. And I just see for us, freelancers just make more sense as a way to do that. Wow, what a great lesson to have learned for your business journey in this particular way. And it's something you don't have to do in every business, but you could do when you need to. And I mean, most people will never learn this lesson. For them, hiring is full-time or no time. And Mm -hmm. I think that the world is shifting away from that with remote work and piecemeal work. And like, there's so many different ways to look at this that I I genuinely think you've probably shifted the minds of a lot of people listening that you don't need to full-time employ someone to get the work done. Yeah. And I also had a lot of ideas that in retrospect, like I'm seeing more and more how a small company really should not take any kind of playbook from a funded company. It's such a different thing. And I see a lot of things that I did where it's like, like one thing was we always wanted everyone to have a career path where it's like, okay, you can have this advancement in your career. And we felt the need to have managers and stuff. It's like, in retrospect, we didn't have room for that. Like we had people doing a lot of over management because we were trying Mm. to copy that structure that we saw from quote unquote successful businesses. But Actually, there are a lot of people that love being an individual contributor. I mean, you see this a lot. People are like, oh, shit, to advance, I have to be a manager. I really hate managing people, but now I have to do it because it's it's the only way to move forward in my career. Like, There's a lot of people who don't want to, quote unquote, advance in that way. They want to have their thing that they love to do, that they're great at. We also don't have like a paper bell. We don't have meetings. (laughs) Like The freelancers just do their part. We don't need to have all hands meetings. Like Everyone Mm. has the asynchronous information that they need. A lot of people really want to be on a team without meetings, but the kind of VC trend is to kind of go the other way and have like, okay, at the start of every meeting, we all have to go around and like talk about like how our mindset is at the moment. We have to do a lot of like team building stuff. And we Mm. did all that stuff at Edgar. And I was just kind of like, I just, I don't want to do all that stuff. I just want to like show up 
do my thing, do my work. And peace out. Yeah, I love that. And I, I love your approach to building businesses and thinking illogically and laterally about the way to build things because there isn't one mm-hmm. way. I think yeah. it's Steve Jobs quote. Uh, he said that the rules were just made up by the people who came before you. Yeah. That's it. They're not yeah. different. They're not special. They were just there first. So you don't have to follow their rules. And if there's anything I've taken away from talking with you for the last hour, it's that, that you don't have to do things just because that's the way people do things. So thank you for that. And in closing, please tell people where they can find you, follow you and Paperbell. Give us a little bit about that. And yeah, that's it. Yeah, we haven't even said what Paperbell is. So Paperbell is a tool for coaches, like life coaches, not like football coaches, to run their business. So scheduling, billing, payment plans, client management, contract signing, having that all really easy for you, really easy for your clients uh, in one place. So you can go to paperbell.com and you can find me online at LKR on Twitter or I blog sometimes on my name, lauraruder.com. Well, Laura, I'm so happy to say that for you as a founder, it's not over.